This week, I'm joined by one of the biggest names in the industry, of course, a name everyone will recognize, DJI. Specifically, we welcome to the program Brendan Schulman, who's the Vice President of Policy and Legal Affairs for DJI Technology. Brendan, welcome to the program. Thank you, Grant. Great to be here. Obviously, I've been wanting to have you guys on a while because you're the biggest name in the industry. You know, nearly all my clients use are using you guys products and really so much of the drone industry and what we've accomplished over the past three, five, even, you know, six, seven years has largely been because of the capabilities of DJI products. Um, why don't we start by telling me a little bit about your background and how you ended up where you are at DJI? I'd be happy to. Uh, in fact, it's sort of, uh, in some respects, uh, similar to your background. Uh, back in 2013, I was a lawyer in private practice at the uh, at a law firm in New York City, and also someone who had a lot of uh, personal background with remotely flying aircraft. That was my lifelong hobby going back 20 years uh, from that point, and realizing that at that point in time, the FAA did not have a set of rules for unmanned aircraft systems uh, and other legal doctrines, including privacy, property, um, you know, torts, contracts, and so on, uh, would be impacted by the emergence of this new technology. I started what I think was the country's first unmanned aircraft systems practice group uh, at that firm. And I took on the, um, at the time, the landmark Perker case, litigated that. Uh, and also um, a case for Texas EquiSearch to help them in their uh, uh, mission to use drones uh, for volunteer search and rescue, as well as uh, proposals that would help advance uh, operations for everyone. So I, I, at the time I was an advocate for um, unmanned aircraft systems at the nation, nascent stage of the, of the policies, which primarily focused on aviation safety, uh, as well as personal privacy. And then in about mid 2015, DJI asked me to join them and to lead the development of our public policy uh, group uh, worldwide, not just in the U.S., uh, but also uh, in Europe, Asia Pacific, and so on. And, and really, the goal has been the same. My, my passion and my dedication, even before DJI, to advocate for reasonable and appropriate risk-based policies for this emerging technology, that's been the, the mission all along. Because I, I know the technology, I love it. I love seeing people use it in new ways to save lives or even just to have fun and take pictures. Uh, and, and to me, the, the policies need to be rational and based on what the technologies actually do, the risks they pose, and solutions that actually make sense. Recent uses that you've seen drones being used for. Obviously, with COVID-19, we've seen some true innovation and in people using drones in ways that we wouldn't have necessarily thought about even six months ago. So what are some of the more interesting use cases you've seen? You know, there's so many, I, I feel like I hear about a new use case uh, almost every month, even at this point. Um, with the COVID-19 pandemic, I think we've seen a lot of applications that, that, that prove that remotely controlled technology can make a difference. And obviously, we've heard about drone deliveries. Those are programs that have been going on for a while. And they're great, obviously, if you can deliver something at a distance without person-to-person -person interaction, uh, that happens to work great in a pandemic where you need to keep people apart, uh, but also just as a force multiplier in, in using the drone in place of, um, whether it's law enforcement or fire, firefighters or public safety officials, 
who can't be on the job either because they need to have smaller teams or some of them are literally out sick. Um, you can use this flying robot as a way of substituting for person, personnel uh, shortfalls. And I think that's been true across industries. We've also seen a really interesting use cases in contactless inspection. So uh, missions that would involve people getting together, climbing structures, putting up rigging, uh, let's use a drone instead and, and take the same kinds of inspection pictures. So uh, there's a mission we've all heard of for years, you know, using uh, a drone to do an inspection kind of uh, function uh, because of the cost efficiency as well as the personal safety. Well, along comes a, a pandemic that uh, makes it even more important or gives you an additional reason to do, th to do something um, without putting a lot of people together in one place. And I think we're still kind of learning from that. Uh, on the other hand, it's not surprising to anyone who's used drone technology that uh, these kinds of applications are, are perfect for something that is flown. Remotely. One of the most rewarding aspects of this whole process that at least I've seen in the past few months are that I've seen a shift in public perception. Um, maybe not necessarily a complete win, but it does seem like there are more people out there who are really starting to understand what we do in our industry and why we are so um zealously in favor of this technology for months and for years and years even cinema uh news media of course the stories were always negative and they still are uh just the other day there was a story out there about drones doing spying on nude beaches or something um but we have seen some news coverage in recent months of drones being used for good and i i do think that there has been a shift in public perception. Would you agree? I agree in part, but I think I'm maybe more skeptical than, than, than you sound on that issue. I think we still have a lot to do. Um, there are just so many reasons that drones scare people. Um, you know, originally it was, you know, are these armed drones coming from overseas used by the military? No, they're not. Then it was the risk of airline collisions, personal privacy in your backyard, misuse by terrorists. Uh, lately, it's it's cybersecurity and data privacy. There's just so many reasons to be fearful. I'm not sure that we've done enough yet to overcome that, uh, but we're trying. And you know, as one example, uh, DJI has uh, recently launched a map on on our website that lets you see exactly where drones have been reported to have rescued people from peril, whether that's uh, a missing person scenario, or firefighting, or or uh, avalanche or floods. Uh, we basically looked across the media now for years, we've been compiling these publicly reported stories of uh, drones doing good things. And now visualize that on a map. So wherever you live or wherever you work, you can take a look and see uh, what drones have been doing right in your neighborhood. We, we hope that that will kind of bring home that message that drones uh, are out there doing wonderful things for people, even in your own community that you might not have noticed uh, the news story six months ago, but there it is on the map. And of course, we also welcome other people to submit um, uh, stories of drones that are used to assist and rescue people, including life-saving missions. So we're now up to, I think, over 430 people who've been saved that way. I agree. There's still so much work to be done. And, you know, one of the more controversial issues that kind of is a hindrance to moving the scale in favor of public acceptance of drones, of course, is the issue with Chinese source drones, whether it be the um, the security concerns raised by some people in government, uh, 
certainly in in light of COVID, there's been even more across America of what we've seen, somewhat of an anti-China sentiment and concerns about drones sending information to China. Um, you know, well, first, I'm going to let you go ahead and just um, say what you know. What what is your response to the concerns that drones are inherently unsafe? Chinese source drones are inherently unsafe because of the potential for them to send information back to China. Well, uh, th this is a very serious and, and I think uh, e even troubling issue for the industry as a whole. I, I think we need to start with the the basic understanding of what the drone actually does, and everyone who uses a drone understands this, but not every policymaker legislating or regulating drones understands. The drone is a flying camera, and the user controls where that drone points its camera and takes a picture. Uh, so that could be a beach, a mountain, a landscape, uh, a farm, a uh, piece of uh, equipment that you're inspecting, or a rooftop after a storm has recently occurred uh, in my region here in the Northeast. Um, or it could be something sensitive, but that's up to you, right? You as a user are controlling the device. The drone is not sitting in the middle of telecom infrastructure, able to reach out and intercept communications by any number of, of people who might need that, that connection. So number one is the drone is under your control because you're deciding what to do with it. And that's just so basic. Uh, and then beyond that, you have to also appreciate that the drone is not something that even needs to be connected to the internet or to any server. So you can use it as a flying camera, including those search and rescue missions that are on our map. And you know that real-time feed directly to your handheld controller is all you need to make the drone useful or to take pictures that you then look at, um, you know, if there's a real estate photo, you take it back uh, to, your, to your own office and now you're just viewing it locally. Or a firefighting mission, including in the, in the wildfires. What you need is the activation in the field. There's no need for internet transmission of anything. And so it's as simple as, as operating the drones, any drone, including our products, entirely offline. You can just have your device in what, what effectively is like an airplane mode. So I think that there's a, there's a huge gap in understanding that the drones just aren't doing the same things as social media companies or telecom infrastructure. They're basically a camera that happens to fly. If you start with that understanding, I think you also can appreciate that there are more things that you can do to ensure data security in a drone product. And those are things that we, we've done. Uh, for example, the implementation of what we call local data mode, which was now over two years ago. So this is like airplane mode on your phone, except it's just for the drone. It's like the drone is in airplane mode. It's offline. It's not communicating with any internet uh, uh, service or, or communication system. Um, that alone ought to be enough to, to call the the concerns because you basically have a product that just isn't sending data anywhere. And by the way, those you know those features are things that have been examined by, by various uh, government and private organizations to verify that it's true. Although you could do it yourself, you could you could activate that mode and you'll see that there's no transmission of data. So on some level, this is actually a very simple problem to solve. If you wanted to actually solve a technical problem, is simply use our products or any brand product entirely offline, and you're done. But we have gone beyond that to implement more sophisticated solutions. Uh, we've worked with uh, a federal government agency to go one step further and ensure that there, not only do you have a choice in whether data is going anywhere, but it would be impossible to send data anywhere because the drones 
connectivity functions have been stripped out so that that agency's own employees couldn't even accidentally or intentionally send data to DJI or, or elsewhere. Uh, and then most recently, uh, as you've probably seen, uh, Bruce Allen Hamilton did an analysis of three of our products for Precision Hawk, and they concluded, among other things, and you should read the full um, summary that's available from Precision Hawk, but one of the key findings from my perspective is that there is no evidence of a connection between the drone and DJI or China or any uh, unexpected party. So it's sort of a question of like how many how many different ways can one prove that there's no issue here? How many different third parties? The Blue Balance study was, I think, the fifth or sixth in that genre of other parties examining our technology and arriving at essentially a similar conclusion one way or the other that there's no big concern, surreptitious data transfer going on, or at least no signs of that. And those who allege that that's happening have never presented evidence or facts in support of that claim. So I think when you get down to what the drone does, how it works, the control you have over it, these concerns are all addressable. And, and therefore, you can only conclude uh, reasonably that all the stuff out there is, is political, right? We're in an environment that's highly charged when it comes to uh, geopolitics, data security. Um, and, you know, we can talk about that, although I think it's kind of self-evident. And the technology really speaks for itself. Right. And, you know, one thing that I've said time and time again is regardless of your position on this issue, let's talk about the practicalities of banning DJI products. First, to be very clear, because I also think there's this misconception that there's some actual truly um, far along movement to actually ban DJI use in private industry. That's not accurate. That's, that's not really truly what's going on right now, even though you have seen some uh, advocates for banning DJI products in general. What I what I know and what I will say is that there is no better way to cripple our industry than a flat out ban of DJI products, which again, is not going to happen. But people need to be very careful when they're discussing this issue, regardless of whether there are security issues or not, simply because this industry has the potential to do so much good, and it has done so much good. It's provided jobs, it's cut costs, you know, it reduces safety risk. And I know I'm preaching to the choir, but the point I'm making is there's always a practicality side to this that I just don't think, certainly the media doesn't focus on, that, you know, people really don't think about that when they are discussing this serious issue. I think there's two important aspects to this. Uh, first is certainly what you're saying, that you know, these proposals, um, which typically focus on government agency use, as well as grant recipients, uh, they focus not only on, on the fact that the equipment might be made in China or assembled in China, but that some components are made in China. And it's sort of a question of, well, where do you stop? Like once you're starting to ban technology based on where components are made, then all the equipment we're using right now to talk to each other on this video call would have to be banned too. And, and by the way, and here's where the drone industry ought to be alarmed, why only drones? Why, why are drones being treated differently, singled out for this country of origin-based approach? Um, we, you know, for years, as I said, I've worked for five years to die. Um, and even before that, the, the goal always was risk-based policy. Don't treat drones differently but look at the risks and address them, right? Don't put us into the category of manned aircraft where you need 
uh, 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 you know, a uh, manned aircraft pilot certificate um, to fly it. That was the Section 333 exemption era. Uh, also, don't create state law that specifically says you can't fly or take pictures with a drone. When the challenge is privacy, well, we have privacy laws. So anyone in the drone industry that spent years like I have um, focused on risk-based policy, being treated fairly as a technology, not discriminating against the fact that we're drones and we're scary, should be alarmed, if not outraged, by these proposals, as well as uh, any companies that support them, including, I, I'm sort of sorry to say, our competitors, who we see lobbying and advocating and communicating that these policies are a good idea and should pass. And, and the problem with that is not only um, that we start to get discriminated against as a technology, but what does that say about your freedom to operate? So if the, if the national security issue here is that a drone that's made in China or has a Chinese component is a threat to national security, either when flown by a, a federal agency or a grant recipient, uh, or in the case of a proposal we've seen, flown over federal managed lands, well, if that, if that curtails the choice of products or the choice of component that even an American company can put into their drone, then what does that say about you as a drone pilot? You know, sort of, who the heck are you to fly over federal lands or anywhere in the country um, without a security clearance? Like we, if you're worried about the equipment, why aren't you worried about the pilot? So a policy direction that says we have to shut down a market and tamper with it and, and, and exclude components just based on where they're made is also a policy direction that says, we can't let you fly. Why? Because we don't know who you are. You're not a secure government official. You might be like literally a person who manually sends your American drone data to Beijing, and therefore you're not using equipment that's disallowed, but you're disallowed. And so this, this entire direction really is, ought to be very troubling to the entire industry We've believed for, for decades in risk-based policy. You have a safety or security or privacy concern or something like that. Well, the solution is to address the problem. And we, we, we're not um, strangers, and the government is not um, ignorant of how to solve a technology security challenge. You use industry consensus security standards, which exist for other technologies, but not for UAF. So if you really cared about security, you would solve the problem and you would let any company solve that problem, whether it's American or French or Chinese. You wouldn't just say, oh, we're, we figured out the security answer just by looking at where the thing was made. I'm not, honestly, if you were concerned about security, you would also be alarmed because that is a huge uh, gaping hole for adversaries, true adversaries, to use other drone equipment to, to gain malicious access to the data and the systems just because the equipment isn't Chinese. Oh, thanks, Brendan. And uh, again, so many people in the public are already having a difficult time accepting drones, you know, as we've discussed, so we're trying to make strides in that regard. But I think this fear of China, fear of Chinese products could complicate that further, you know, definitely and further harm the public perception. So re regardless of where the drone is made, if it's foreign sourced, if it's American made, it's really important as an industry for us to focus on the benefits drones are capable of providing. And, you know, like you said, there is a balance. You do have to balance risk against what it is you're getting out of the technology. 
Um, and along those lines, we are supposed to have a pretty big end of the year coming up as an industry. Um, hopefully, we have two pretty significant regulatory advancements coming out. The first, of course, being remote ID. The second one being the easing of uh, flights over people and during night. Um, what are your thoughts on where we are in terms of a regulatory environment in the United States? Uh, that's a really important question. We, we've been held up for years due to the lack of remote ID. Uh, you, may, you may recall, um, or some of you, your viewers may recall, that uh, flight over people, uh, as well as night operations, was supposed to be in, uh, proposed in early 2016 and um, was held up uh, for now for years due to the absence of remote ID, which was a concern for the, uh, from the security agencies in Washington. So actually, to some extent, these two issues are connected. Once again, uh, security concerns are holding up innovation and progress and potentially interfering with all kinds of beneficial things. Uh, now, it, it's good that remote ID is moving forward. Uh, we've been supporters of that for a long time. I personally think it's important. It also provides accountability when it comes to things like uh, privacy invasions. Um, but uh, we got to do it right. It has to be something that is... Uh, effective and manageable. And, you know, in our NPRM comment, uh, we pointed out that the approach is overly burdensome. It's it's connect to a network service and pay a probable monthly fee to them and broadcast. Whereas the uh, Aviation Rulemaking Committee in 2017 uh, said, look, um, we, um, we recommend Either or, you know, either broadcast or network, they both work, they both serve the purpose of identifying the drone. And we also had an economist take a look at the FAA proposal and determine that uh, it would cost nine times more than what the FAA was estimating, namely five and a half billion dollars. So here's my concern. Like we want remote ID. In fact, we, uh, years ago, we created our own solution to help assist um, U.S. agencies and infrastructure owners to protect uh, their assets as well as their events, but um, but we got to do it in a way that actually is adopted. Because if only fifty percent of the drones out there are are doing it because of the costs, then all of remote ID fail, right? Then we have a solution that no one's actually using, and therefore it's not enough to identify friends from flow. Remote ID is a, a failure, and then uh, I don't know where we end up. Maybe we get shut down with respect to other operations in the future. Now, when remote ID is done and out there, we are told that, that flight over people and night operations, the, the rules that were proposed actually before remote ID was proposed, will also be finalized because they, they were held up pending remote ID. So you're right, there's a big moment coming up at the end of the year in two respects. Number one, we're finally moving forward on these long promised uh, regulatory frameworks for remote ID, flight over people, and night operations. But also, we're going to figure out, we're going to see whether we all come from the FAA and remote ID. Uh, damages the industry, costs a lot of money, discourages people from using drones, uh, is invasive to their privacy, uh, and, and maybe even doesn't work to the extent that some of these network solutions haven't yet been tested. Uh, we may end up kind of stuck for years, um, again, based on what the FAA remote ID outcome actually is. Sure, pain on that proposed implementation period. Sorry, uh, say that again? So for remote ID, what's your opinion on the promote, the proposed three-year implementation period? Oh, uh, the uh, 
three years seems like a time, um, although it does depend on, on how FAA comes out on this uh, broadcast and or network. Uh, if the agency does uh, accept our comments and those of many thousands of others, that there should be a choice between broadcast and network, then I think the time for implementation is much quicker because then some drones can be upgraded to do broadcasts using existing hardware. Others could be, uh, you could have an attachment that does a broadcast and others would prefer to do a network solution because they already have the equipment or the service that they need. You'll, you'll get an acceleration of that time period. If they mandate both, then pretty much every drone out there has to have some kind of change uh, or be scrapped. So I don't know if three years is enough under that regime. So it kind of depends. Now, just based on the, the pressures that, that, are, that exist on this issue, I, I wouldn't be surprised if the three-year period was cut maybe to two years, just because I think so many stakeholders in the security community want remote to exist right away. And maybe three years is viewed as uh, too long. So we'll see. I, I, th I think that timing is likely to change, but it also really depends on um, what is actually required for remote ID. So I want to pivot to, you know, an event that traditionally, of course, is held in person, but in light of COVID, um, that couldn't happen this year. And that, of course, is the Airworks, which is, you know, a, a gathering of some of the um, the biggest things in the industry, industry, quite frankly. And it's a DJI-produced event. And it, uh, you know, of course, this year, as I said, it's virtual. Um, Brennan, you're scheduled to speak at it. How is it this year approaching Airworks from a virtual perspective? Uh, Air, this is Airworks' year, I believe. And uh, it, it gets bigger and better every year. Obviously, not just our conference, but other drone conferences um, have to go virtual uh, for health reasons, understandably. Uh, what we've tried to do is to make it accessible, you know, understanding that companies and individuals are under financial strain. Um, and, you know, rethinking their, their drone needs and their engagement, we really want the event to be accessible. So the, the price is like really low. Um, and I hope that attracts not just the people who, who would be there in person, but also a broader audience, in fact, an international audience. And the content is always great. We're really focused on, on the, the here and now, not just the future. Of course, there'll be a lot of future-looking stuff, but how can you get the most out of drones today? What technologies are out there? Um, what are the solutions that people are putting into use? Um, and so I think unlike some other conferences that focus a little bit more on futuristic applications or things that are only accessible to large corporations or enterprises, like this is really about the commercial drone user and what they can do with affordable, capable equipment that's on the market today. And I, I think that's that always leads to some amazing, wonderful stories, uh, use cases, um, as well as thought leadership in terms of, you know, there's... There's usually a policy or government relations type panel where we have an exchange of ideas. I have a keynote as well, as you mentioned. And I hope people will, will join us um, from August 25th to 28th. And speaking of keynote, tell me about yours. It's titled Resilience Through Joint Innovation. Obviously, I'm going to speak about what's been on my mind and what I think is um, most uh, important, particularly in, in the area of policy and government relations. Um, and I think we've discussed some of that on the show. You know, the the, the industry is is very much at at a, at a 
a moment, I think, where there are policies in the air that are damaging to innovation, uh, that don't make sense from a risk-based perspective, and that ultimately will threaten us all. And so I, I you know, many of the keynotes uh, at, at Airwork will, will focus on the practicality, the innovation, the applications, and that's great. Uh, but I'm going to focus on, you know, what, what should we really be thinking and, and doing about the upcoming policy challenges in the industry so that we can continue to enjoy the innovation that we've experienced for the past few years and let see growth. Great. Well, I'm certainly looking forward to it. I think it's going to be a great event. It always is, even though it's virtual this uh, year. And, you know, I was looking forward to getting to the uh, West Coast, but uh, I guess I'll have to wait till next year. But um, anyway, so Brendan, tell me, what else can we expect from DJI? What else is coming up in the next year or two? Oh, man, I, I always want to share what, what I've seen uh, being developed, but, but obviously I can't do that. It, it's going to continue to be exciting. Uh, I think, um, you know, we always want to focus on what's useful, you know, features that make a difference to people out there operating. Uh, and of course, we, we always care about safety. And I, I think there's no other company that's been as committed to safety. So one of the things that we've uh, we committed to last year and started implementing this year is ADSB of receivers in, in all of our drones above 250 grams. And the first was the Mavic, uh, Mavic Air 2. And so you've got a very small drone that has aviation equipment on board that helps you detect uh, and notify you about incoming helicopters and airplanes. And so that's our voluntary, really just our latest voluntary contribution to safety. So uh, from my perspective, I, I always focus on what, what more can we do uh, to make operations safe and successful. And then we've got our whole team of engineers and product development people who focus on, on the excitement, uh, making the product uh, innovative and, and bringing the next generation uh, to our customers. And I wish I could share more on that, but I'm not allowed to. Um, but uh, the good news is, you know, if you tune into Airworks, you'll hear some of that. Uh, and obviously, uh, stay tuned for the rest of this year. We're, we're doing our best uh, under the global circumstances to continue to innovate and put, put products out. So uh, there'll be more to come. Thanks, Brendan. Uh, Brendan Schulman, again, the Vice President of Policy and Legal Affairs from DJI Technology. Uh, thanks for being on the program. Obviously, so many people in the industry use DJI's products and are thankful for all the great ways you guys have let operators unlock this technology. So congratulations on all your successes, and um, I look forward to having you back on the program. Thank you, Grant. It was a great conversation.